0: Welcome to True Crime Mysteries, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart of the world's most gripping true crime stories. I'm your host, Megan, and I've spent years researching, investigating, and seeking the truth in dark corners where most people dare not look. Each week, we'll delve into a new case, peeling back layers of mystery, law, and human behavior. Together, we'll explore the intricate webs woven by those who break society's most sacred laws. We'll cover cold cases, missing persons, and recently uncovered serial killers, and instances where DNA has identified a killer. Join us as we journey back in the past, bring decade-old cases to life, and explore the dark, tragic, and inexplicable. And maybe find a light of justice at the end of the tunnel. This is True Crime Mysteries.
1: One man ended a 20-year mystery Wednesday over who killed 48 women in the so-called Green River killing spree of the 1980s. In a deal to avoid the death penalty, Gary Ridgway pleaded guilty to killing all 48 women, most of them found in the Seattle area. Many victims, uh, relatives rather, of the victims who included teenage runaways were in the courtroom when he confessed.
0: Today, we have our final part of the Gary Ridgway Serial Killer Deep Dive. If you haven't yet, go back and watch the other two parts. Otherwise, we're jumping right back into where we left off. Let's get into it. When Gary Ridgway was asked about his first kill, he couldn't really remember. He said that he would left bodies before Wendy Caulfield in more open places, like against a fence, or in the street, or a well-walked area. But he didn't see any reports of the killings so he assumed the women had gained consciousness and walked off he told the task force that he might have killed a sex worker in the 70s while married to his second wife that he was on a date and something went wrong and he might have killed her though they could never get the exact details of his first murder Ridgway admitted to having an interest in killing at an early age when he was about 16 he remembered seeing a boy playing he remembered walking up to the boy, taking a knife out of his pocket, and stabbing the little boy in the side. He didn't know the boy, and he didn't know what happened after he ran off clutching his side. He just wanted to know what it felt like to stab someone and did it. Talking about the boy, he said, quote, He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I was at the right place at the right time. I guess what you'd call it. The task force had actually been able to locate that boy, now a grown man living in california he had been able to confirm that a boy about 10 years older than him had taken him to the woods and stabbed him the boy however made it to the hospital where he had surgery and he never returned to school so the suspect was never found once he recovered his family had moved to california and that statues of limitations had long passed the assault so who was gary Ridgway? Gary Ridgway was born on February 18, 1949, in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was the middle of three boys. When he was 11, his family moved to King County, Washington, where they had a house close to the Pacific Highway South, where he ultimately found most of his victims. His father worked as a bus driver, and Ridgway's claim that his father would bring him along complaining about all the sex workers on the streets that he saw. His mother worked at a department store part-time. Ridgway has said that he wet his bed into his early teens, and his mother would wash his genitals after every incident. He also stated that he had anger and sexual attraction towards his mother, and that he fantasized about killing her.
2: I didn't
3: really think I had an urge to kill her. I just wanted her to stop. And... Uh,
4: what did you want to do to her?
3: What did you want to do to her? Uh, just to... Have her stop and.
0: Uh, but how campaign. would you do it?
4: What did you think in your head about how you would do it? That's that's what we're trying to get at. When did you first think about treating your mom violently to get what you wanted her to do?
3: Probably in fourth grade.
4: Okay, there we go. Fourth,
3: fourth, fourth fifth, and sixth was probably that grade. Okay. And, and
4: what? What was in your mind that you wanted to do to get her to treat you a certain way? What did you want to do to your mom here?
3: Uh, I wanted her to uh, stop um, being angry at me for not knowing how to. Uh,
4: but she wasn't stopping.
3: No, she wasn't stopping. Was she? No.
4: She kept picking on you, belittling you. Mm-hmm. Embarrassing you. I mean, that's pretty clear from yesterday. It
3: mm-hmm. happened in school, too. So I
4: had... So, what did, What was your way of retaliating against her in your mind? What, what were you thinking to do to your mom? Um, I
3: don't know if I was thinking of uh, hurting her. I just wanted her to stop and um, let, me, let me alone. Um. Angry at uh, her for uh, pushing and pushing and pushing on me to to remember, and I just couldn't remember, and I just wanted her to stop. But she didn't. But She didn't know.
4: She didn't stop. So somewhere in the fourth or fifth grade, that sense of helplessness that you had, not get being able to get her to stop. Mm-hmm would very likely have pro- produced thoughts of taking back some power and control over your mom to get the bitch to shut up. I mean, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but Gary, that's what we hear, and that's mm-hmm. what one of the things we're looking to get a better understanding of.
3: During, during that thing, I usually took it out on... Uh, 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 other things instead of hurting her, uh, uh, um, living things. Living things, killing, killing animals. Okay. Killing animals. Um, I stabbed a kid one time. Okay. I stabbed a kid with a knife. Tell me about that. Um, down by uh, Chinook where I used to go to school and the boy was playing I stabbed him inside and didn't kill him and I think it was about sixth grade I think it was uh, seventh grade and I I uh, that was at the same time I was you know, breaking out windows throwing, throwing rocks at windows at a not that yeah. that's what I took my aggression on I couldn't take it on my mom I had to take it on my animals and
4: how many and your animals kids. did you kill
3: Online, I killed a lot of birds, but uh, one cat suffocated in a, a, his chest, mm-hmm. and uh, shot uh, babies at, at dogs yeah. and to hurt him and threw lots of rocks at my. Brother, about that time, I think I was getting out of that, though.
4: So you couldn't take your aggression down on your mom.
3: No, you couldn't.
4: But you could think about it.
3: I could think about it, and... and What'd you think? I thought of, about hurting her uh, so she would sh- shut up and uh, leave me alone, and then... How
4: did you think about hurting your mom? Killing her. And how would you do that?
3: with uh, my hands or uh, I didn't have no guns or anything either, so I didn't it had to uh hands or uh, uh, and then after she was dead what were you going
4: to do
3: in your head in my head I uh, I don't know what i would going to do I just just um under his,
0: his mother died a few years before he was arrested, and his father died in the early 90s. Ridgway is believed to have an IQ in the low 80s. He was held back twice in school and graduated in 1969 from Taiyi High School. After high school, he joined the Navy. While in the military, he married his high school sweetheart in 1970. He was deployed to the Philippines, which he admitted was his first time experiencing sex workers. In 1971, he was honorably discharged from the Navy and returned home. While he'd been away, his first wife had begun a relationship with another man and had filed for divorce, and they were divorced by 1972. Ridgway would say his wife had become a whore while he was overseas. In August 1971, he started a job at Kenworth Trucking, which he kept for over 30 years until his arrest in 2001. His job was only a few miles north of where he picked up most of his victims. In 1972, he met his second wife. They were married in December 1973, and they lived in several residences during their marriage. In 1975, they had a son named Michael. His second wife would remember that Ridgway liked to have sex outside and had been interested in bondage. He liked to practice walking silently when they walked in the woods, coming up behind her and scaring her. She would report that he often came home later than expected, wet and dirty. In the later years of their marriage, he would come home later and later. At least once, Ridgway admitted that he came up behind his second wife and choked her in what he called a police-style chokehold. After their relationship deteriorated in 1980, they separated. In 1981, their divorce was finalized, and she got full custody of their son. Ridgway then only got to see him on alternate weekends. In November 1981, Ridgway bought his house at 21859, 32nd Place South, King County, Washington. This was where, in his 2003 interview, he admitted to taking and killing the majority of his victims. He admitted that he didn't kill any woman in the house for six months in 1982 when he had renters living in the house and he lived alone there until 1985. after his second divorce ridgway had several relationships with women some he met at organizations for single parents parents without partners he even got engaged again and planned to be married in june 1984 but she ultimately ended the engagement after she had met someone else In february 1985 he met his third wife at the parents without partners group several months after they started dating she moved into his house in place south in 1988 they got married they moved several times but always stayed in the king county from 1989 to 1997 ridgway owned a residence in des moines washington he then moved to auburn washington where he lived until his arrest in 2001 His third wife and many of his ex-girlfriends would be shocked to learn that Gary Ridgway had been killing women during their time dating him. His third wife has talked about how he was an amazing, caring, and involved man, and that they had a good marriage. She said that he was good with his son and her children, and that she loved him at first sight. However, they got divorced in 2002 after his conviction.
1: Gary had always been a loving husband. He made me feel like a newlywed every day. They met in 1985, married in 88. She moved into Gary's Modest Rambler in SeaTac, a home where, unbeknownst to her, scores of young women had been brutally murdered. From there, they moved to their dream home in Auburn. Judith describes their life as loving and content. They were surrounded by treasured pets and took many weekend trips that hold fond memories even today what I miss the most is the love that I had in our life and he was the best to me And that's why it was easy for Gary to convince her his arrest was just a case of mistaken identity he was reassuring me that everything would be okay it was painful painful in part because the pieces just didn't fit gary had never raised a hand to her never even raised his voice and if he was away from home he always had a logical explanation he was working overtime at kenworth or attending a union meeting you never saw anything suspicious No. Still, detectives went through the Ridgeways' cozy home with a fine tooth comb. This never before seen video shows the aftermath of a necessary but intrusive search that sent Judith reeling. Investigators seized her jewelry and some of her clothing, convinced they could be trophies Gary took from his victims. Still, in Judith's mind, Gary was innocent.
2: I was still in just such
1: denial. And then a series of discoveries and photographs shattered Judith's trust. Suddenly all the pieces that didn't fit began to fall into place. Judith found a stash of condoms in the couple's garage. Detectives found more, stuffed in the framework of Gary's pickup truck. And it gets worse. They tore Judith's car apart. The crime lab found traces of semen. Investigators told Judith Gary had probably used her car to pick up some of his victims.
2: Then I felt the, the anger that he had sex with someone else, that he um, hurt me. that he betrayed me. He said he did not do anything with those women. But then when I found the condoms and stuff, then I realized that he did.
1: But for Judith, there would be one more staggering surprise. Gary had killed four of his 48 victims during the years he was with her. Oh, I'd say, why you son of a bitch, why did you do this
2: to me? Why did you put me through all this?
1: And why, Judith thought, did he kill all those women? Do you think about the women and their families? Oh,
2: yes. My heart goes out to all of the families and the victims that he hurt. And I can't even imagine how they're what they've been
1: through and what about him the man she believed was her prince charming judith refuses to visit gary in prison she won't take his calls and she told him to stop writing letters but her heart is still conflicted do you love him
2: no i love the man i knew and i hate the man that took him away
0: Law enforcement believed that Ridgway got away with his crimes for so long because he didn't fit popular perceptions of a serial killer at the time he wasn't a loner he'd always been in a relationship or married he had no violent criminal history he was steadily employed for 30 years after his arrest and confessions his brother came forward saying that he had never displayed any abnormal behavior in front of him the people who knew Gary Ridgeway best didn't know him at all. Gary Ridgway is considered to be one of America's most prolific serial killers, having been convicted of 49 murders and is believed to have killed more than 70 women between 1982 and 2001. At that time, only one known victim had escaped Ridgway, Rebecca Guay, and in her case could never go to trial as a statute of limitations had passed by 2003. These are Gary Ridgway's confirmed victims. Gary Ridgeway had three unidentified victims. One victim was known previously as Bones 10, but was identified in 2020 as Wendy Stevens, who was Ridgway's youngest victim at 14 years old. She had run away from her home in Denver, Colorado in 1983, and her remains were found in March, 1984. The last two unknown victims are called Jane Doe b 17 who was found in 1986, and Jane Doe B-20, who was found with the help of Ridgway in 2003. Authorities are still hopeful to identify both victims.
3: Ridgway confessed to 49 murders over the course of several years back in 2003 and has been rotting away in a cell ever since. But detectives have still been trying to place names with a couple of his unidentified victims, including a young woman whose remains were found in southeast King County in January of 1986. Forensic evidence suggests she was in her mid to late teens when Ridgway killed her, and she may have been from out of state. This now is how they believe the woman looked after they used, in easy-to-understand terms, DNA analysis from a company called Parabon Labs to isolate her genetic makeup in terms of hair color, eye color, and the like, and with the help of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children that was able to put
1: this composite sketch together. Creating the structure of what we think this child's face could be, and that's using a 3D modeling software based on a CT scan of the skeletal remains. That 3D modeling software allows us to put digital clay on top of the skull uh, in order to create a facial approximation as to what we think she could have looked like. Uh, The goal of that is to obviously get the face out to as many people in the public uh, through whatever means we can.
0: Authorities believe that there may still be more victims out there. We may never know the exact number that Ridgway killed. Gary Ridgway currently resides in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. He will never be free, and he will die in prison. Well folks, we've reached the end of another gripping episode here on True Crime Mysteries. Thank you for joining me as we delve deep into the complexities of today's case. Before we go, let's not forget the human element in these stories. The victims, their families, and sometimes even the perpetrators are all part of a larger societal puzzle that we're trying to understand. While we explore these cases, it's crucial to remember the impact on real lives and communities. If you want to keep up with our weekly investigations, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are captivated by these stories as we are. Please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your support helps us bring more unsolved mysteries and untold stories to light. With that being said, stay curious, stay vigilant, and most importantly, stay safe. Until next week, good night.